It is a joy being with you. Sunday number two, woot woot, we did it. We got past the first one and now we're on to the second one and forevermore. So we are grateful that you are here with us. We're grateful that you've chosen to worship at Midtown Church. Um, well, as we are beginning life as a church community, um, we are committed to sitting at the feet of Jesus and hearing what he has to say. And something that we talked about last week is that Jesus's um, really introduction into Gal his Galilean ministry begins with the phrase, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we talked about how that repent in this particular circumstance is all about a rethinking. It's all about deconstructing maybe some ideas that you had about God previously and being opened again to discovering what Christ might have to say to us. And so now we enter the really the first section of the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, it's one of the most famous texts, really, in all of Scripture. And so as we begin exploring, and I'll keep reminding us, us of these things, but as we begin to explore Christ's Sermon on the Mount, I want to um, maybe point out three things. First, the Sermon on the Mount is not an isolated speech. So Stanley Hauerwas, one of my favorite theologians, says this, Jesus' life is but a commentary on the sermon, and the sermon is an exemplification of his life. This is to say that the life, death, ministry, and resurrection of Jesus gives flesh and bone and body and story to what he's talking about in the sermon. So if we treat it as an isolated speech, we will not understand the sermon in its fully. Secondly, the whole sermon is Christ describing what life in his kingdom and what allegiance to him looks like. It is a vision cast for what life as the followers of Christ look like. It's his original vision of what creation was supposed to be. And it is his invitation to say, come live and come be a part of a different kingdom. And remember, Jesus' definition of God's kingdom, kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then finally, obedience to the Sermon on the Mount is a practice in imagination. One of the things I think is funny when communicators open up the scripture and begin talking about it, it's really heavily rooted in the his history, which it is necessarily. But we never make the leap to going and here's how this applies to us today. For obedience to the Sermon on the Mount is not to act like a first century rabbi. It's not to act like a first century Jew. The challenge of the Sermon on the Mount is to go, okay, what would Jesus do if he were in our time and in our day living our life? It's a practice in imagination. It requires us to be creative and to think with open eyes and look around and really take a lay of the land and try to uncover prayerfully what Christ might be calling us to. And as Jesus opens his sermon, he pronounces eight blessings that flip everybody's understanding of what blessing is. He flips it on its head. And the form of Jesus' blessings was not unique. So um, there's actually a contemporary of Jesus. This was written just a, a few 
uh, 20 or so years before Jesus. And it's actually found in Sirach 25. I know that means nothing to you. But as I read it, it might sound a little familiar. It says, I, think, I can think of nine whom I would call blessed, and a tenth my tongue proclaims. A man who can rejoice in his children. Obviously, the blessed are the males. A man who can live to see the downfall of his foes. A man who's victorious. Happy is the man who lives with a sensible wife. I'm not touching that. And the one who does not plow with ox and donkey together. I'm not sure what that means, but it sounds pretty good. I want my donkey and my ox working together. Happy is the one who does not sin with the tongue. Heard that. The one who does not serve an inferior. Sounds pretty like a good idea. Don't serve someone beneath you. Happy is the one who finds a friend and the one who speaks to attentive listeners. Who doesn't want to be the person everybody pauses to listen to? How great is the one who finds wisdom. But none is superior to the one who fears the Lord. Fear of the Lord surpasses everything. To whom can we compare the one who has it? This form of teaching... This idea of blessings is not new to Jesus. Jesus doesn't innovate in this way. But what is innovative in Jesus' Beatitudes is the content. For as we just read, everything in here, there's nothing overtly religious or Jesus-centered about it. In fact, I, it doesn't take much work to go, oh yeah, that's a good idea, that's a good idea. And someone who wouldn't call themselves a follower of Christ could say, yeah, Sensible wife sounds like a good thing. But what Jesus does is he flips those things on its head and he opens his sermon with eight blessings that become the counter-cultural ethos by which his followers will live by for centuries. Now the term beatitude, uh, beatitudes is an anglicized version of a Latin mashing it means basically a state of blessedness. It's not found in the scripture. It kind of develops later on. Um, but as we look at the Beatitudes, I could spend a lot of time going through these verse by verse. And I wanted to, and Cassie talked me out of it. So you can thank her later. But the Beatitudes can really be divided into two groups. For each of the two groups has exactly 36 Greek words. All four of the first blessings in the group, grouping begin with the Greek letter pi. And the last beatitudes honor righteousness. And perhaps more impressively, the first four are all people in need, while the last four are, four are all people in service. So the way I'm going to divide them, or the first four, are blessings on those who have been broken by our world. And the second four are blessings on those who work on behalf of the broken. The first set of these blessings um, have almost been uh, spiritualized into meaninglessness. You've probably heard a sermon on the Beatitudes before and they're like, okay, now you need to be poor. You need to figure out how to mourn. You need to figure out how to be powerless or meek. You need to figure out how to thirst for righteousness and justice. And they go through all of the Beatitudes, identifying these not as people, but as virtues. And if this is a list of virtues, it is not good news. If this is a list of virtues in which you now put a checklist in front of yourself and like, okay, how am I going to be poor in spirit today? 
how am I going to mourn today? How am I going to be meek today? How, if it becomes a checklist, it is hardly good news. But if Jesus is giving a roll call for those who belong in the kingdom, if he's giving a roll call for those who he would call blessed, well, that's a completely different story. If it is a roll call, then it is Jesus throwing open wide the gates of the kingdom and saying, this is who I would call blessed. I remember um, being, I think I was a junior at a private Christian university. And I remember watching my Bible professor do exegetical gymnastics. That means he is trying to push these beatitudes into a particular vision of life that he's trying to communicate. I remember him doing a lot of like, and this actually means this, don't take it for what it says, and this and that. And it just, it was, here we are sitting at a private Christian university fairly well off, and he's trying to explain how we were the poor in spirit that Jesus was talking about. And I remember thinking that, that just doesn't seem to set right with the context and who Jesus is talking to. For Jesus' audience was not a, a group of white millennials sipping on our $4 coffee, which I, I firmly fit in that category, so that is not a diss. That is just, that is not who he was talking to. Jesus' audience was a group of impoverished Galileans that Jewish historians call the Anawim. And they can agree on three things about this particular group of people, that they were economically poor, and yet they trusted God. They found their way to the temple as a meeting place, and they longed for a Messiah that would bring about justice. Jesus is speaking to those who are experiencing abject poverty, violent oppression, and have been stripped of anything resembling power, and yet he offers them everything. He is not speaking to the powerful. He is not speaking to the influencers. He's speaking to the people at the lowest rung of the ladder. And so for us to kind of try and spiritualize these fails to, to really grasp the rich context and history of what Jesus is saying. Jesus opens with, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit will cover those who are spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, and economically poor. This is not a statement on those who are willing to enter economic poverty. This is a statement on those who have been crushed by society. Poor in spirit is a statement on poverty. It's a statement on those who find themselves at the bottom of society. Blessed are you. And this first blessing becomes the lifeblood for the rest of the sermon. For it is a blessing for those in bad situation, not for those with good attitudes. And then the second blessing is as followed. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Maybe a better translation um, is blessed are those who are brokenhearted. This is not for someone who enjoys a sad movie every once in a while or listening to country. This is a blessing on those who have experienced the worst that life has to offer. Jesus' promise is that the kingdom of God and the comfort of that kingdom is near to the brokenhearted. It is a reminder that the Lord sees us as we cry out and it is not just grief for ourselves 
but grief at the state of the world. Jesus' statement is, blessed are those who are brokenhearted, for you will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Better blessing, or a better translation of blessed are the little people. Blessed are the powerless. Blessed are those who are overlooked, unthought of, unseen. And in many ways, the second and third beatitude are a continuation of the first. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Dave Bruner offers this beautiful thought. Thus, for a third time in the three Beatitudes, it appears that Jesus simply picks up the pieces, first to the dependent poor, then to the grief-stricken, and now to the unaggressive, Jesus gives everything. God's kingdom, God's comfort, and now God's green earth. Yet everyone knows that it is the uh, it's the psychically and the spiritually self-confident, the positive, the possibility thinkers, the dynamic, the assertive, who really get things done and who really get the things done on earth. The meek may inherit heaven, both the entrepreneur and the revolutionary, they give the meek heaven, but not the earth. Yet Jesus gives them the earth. The situation in which the world judges as disastrous and hopeless are the very ones that Jesus calls blessed. Notice that Christ doesn't offer solutions to rescue them from their poverty, brokenhearted, or powerlessness. And that's not to say that Jesus is saying, good for you. I think he's looking into the face of the darkness and the evil that world has to offer He's looking at it from a realistic lens and he's not offering programs or paradigms or things for them to shift their thinking. He's saying, in the midst of your brokenness, there's a blessedness. In the midst of the things you're fighting and you're just struggling for survival, God is near. Earlier this year, um, it's a long story, but basically I was asked to help a, a gentleman who was experiencing homelessness. And this was right in the middle of that cold snap where it was down to like negative 32. And the very first night, it's pouring snow and I just get this text like, he hasn't found a place to sleep tonight. It's 10 p.m., pouring snow. And so I jump in my car and I'm like driving five miles an hour towards downtown Kansas City, just hoping that I can spot a guy with a red backpack. That was the description guy with a red backpack so I pulled up to several places and I'm like I was yelling out his name and eventually I, I ended up finding him and we spent probably 45 minutes trying to find a hotel we grabbed Wendy's and in the midst of that conversation I, I learned a great deal about his life story he came to faith in prison and he devoured every theological handbook textbook and scripture reference he could find and so for 45 minutes me and this homeless gentleman over Wendy's and just a, a dark car ride talked about the Trinity. We talked about the beauty of God. And even in the midst of the, really what the worst the world has to offer, he had this incredible hope. And I think this is what Jesus means when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are you who in the midst of what the worst life has to offer, clinging on to the hope of God. This is what he's talking about. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. 
Blessed are those who desire to follow the commands of the Lord. Desire being the operative word here, revealing the strength of God's grace. Blessed are those who ache for justice is maybe a better way to say this. For the Jewish theology that would have soaked Jesus's imagination has no category for righteousness disconnected from human charity or social justice. The prophet Amos has a particularly harsh warning for those who separate their conduct from their worship. So this statement in particular is about those who would ache and hunger for justice. It's a posture that yearns for Christ's coming to break into the world and set all things right. This fourth beatitude connects the marginalized people, the populations that find themselves in the midst of the worst the world has to offer. It shifts from populations to a posture of hoping for the Lord's coming. All of the Beatitudes must generally be read with the future in mind. That is to say that we should all see these as Jesus saying something about the future. But this one in particular is about Jesus' announcing his coming kingdom and that it's about those who will be blessed by that future reality. Any moral, ethical, or other application of the Beatitudes is in order to live in right alignment with the coming future. Uh, growing up, there was this show on Disney Channel called uh, Phil of the Future. Anybody remember that? It was about this family who traveled from the far off future to the present. And in many ways, as goofy as an example as this is, in many ways, that is what Jesus is beckoning his people to do, to look at the possibility of what his kingdom will offer and to bring that into the present. It's to say there will be a day in which every tear will be wiped from every eye, death will be no more, sickness will be no more, and it is to try and live as close to that future as we can now. Jesus offers four blessings on those who have been broken by the world. These first four Beatitudes are all about those who find themselves in the worst situations that life has to offer. And then he turns and he offers blessings on those who would work on behalf of the broken. The blessings on those who pursue righteousness and justice work on behalf of those who could be described by the previous Beatitudes. And this second set of Beatitudes acknowledges that there are those of us following Jesus that have not experienced the things that are mentioned prior, but that we have a chance to engage with those who do. And Matthew's Jesus takes very seriously the disciples' role in working out their salvation. He opens, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful cannot be a cold statement of apathy or uncaring. It is a statement of becoming an understanding, warm, and empowering presence. It is defending the potential of all people. The merciful put themselves in proximity to others and learn how to support and care for them. One of Jesus' favorite verses in Matthew is Hosea 6.6. 6. 
For the Lord your God desires mercy, not sacrifice. The proof of gospel understanding makes one more merciful, not more severe. Oftentimes we've been around Christians who have an understanding of the gospel that makes them more severe. But I would argue Jesus advocates for a merciful posture. Mercy extended to others is mercy received. And being a merciful, forgiving, or loving person is not a condition for God's grace, but it is a necessary consequence. And this is the only conclusion that makes sense with this beatitude, the Lord's Prayer, really Matthew's Gospel as a whole, that mercy is the condition of one who understands God's grace. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed is the person who is centered on God at their core. Blessed is the person who clearly identifies Christ as their true north. In the midst of our world, in the midst of just the confusion and chaos, it is difficult to remain pure in heart. And, uh, you know, in the midst of the crumbling of kind of purity culture and and those types of things, it could be um, maybe unpopular to say, you know, Jesus is throwing open the doors of the sexual revolution and all of those things. But the person who interprets this as not just pure in heart by seeing God's direction, but that there is a purity of our own heart, there is a hearty amen in Jesus's words. That this is about the person who is rightfully walking close to Jesus and walking close to his example. And in doing so, they will see God around every corner. Blessed are the pure in heart because they will see God's work. Augustine interprets this as faith that works by love. The one who will be blessed is the one seeking to center their lives on God. And in their seeking, they will be rewarded. On interpreting this beatitude, Matthew's Jesus offers us another way of saying this, found later in Matthew 22. Teacher, said a a teacher of the law, which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In loving our neighbor, we will see the face of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Peacemaker could be translated wholemaker. Um, For we are in the work of comprehensive welfare. When we think of peace, uh, or often we think of peace as tranquility of mind or absence of violent conflict, but biblical shalom is much different than that. The Hebrew concept of peace envisions a circle that each one of us belongs to, and it is about right relationships with everyone in the circle and God. So when there is a breaking in the circle, shalom is lost. So to bring peace is to bring community. It is to bring right relationships amongst people. So blessed are the reconcilers, the community makers, 
the includers. Peacemaking could be identified as the theme of this chapter. For as we will continue to go, Jesus will say, you have heard it said, and then he'll offer some different commandments. You have heard it said, anger is murder, lustful intent is adultery, divorce is adultery, swearing oaths is dishonesty, eye for an eye is violence, love your enemies. These are all practices of peacemaking. Biblical shalom is not an internal virtue, but an outward practice. So it involves engaging in the systems and the structures that deny someone their, their right as a human being, and it is engaging those things to see them changed. Blessed are the whole makers. Blessed are the community builders. Blessed are those who are in the business of reconciling. Finally, Jesus will offer two blessings that they kind of consider the twin blessings. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets, so they will persecute you. Will the worship team join me? The life of Jesus embodies this beatitude with tragic potency. Those working to see justice, goodness, and beauty in the world uh, might be crushed by it. For those of us who are really walking as disciples of Christ, bitter unpopularity is what should be expected. But the reward of the first beatitude and the reward of the eighth are word-for-word -word duplicates, which seems to be Jesus' way of rounding this out. Blessed are you when you are reviled on my behalf. There is comfort in this that you will be counted amongst the blessed. You will be counted amongst those in the kingdom. I think Brian Stevenson, the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative, an organization committing to serving those on death row, has a beautiful story about him speaking to this rural church in Alabama. And the entire time he was there, there was a gentleman at the back of the room just giving him the, the eye. You know what I mean when I say the eye, the, the eye. He's just kind of staring him down. And Brian recounts this moment of, you know, kind of catching him in the back and as he's looking at him, he, he just, he's not sure what or why he's staring at him in this way. And it distracts him, but he, he kind of pushes through and he finishes up. And as it happens, crowds gather around him as he's finished and they're kind of talking and chatting. And that man has been wheeled up in a wheelchair by a younger man. And he's kind of just waiting for Brian. And as soon as the chance emerges, the elderly man grabs Brian and he asks him, do you know what you're doing? Shocking. Do you know what you're doing? Three times he says this. Do you know what you are doing? Brian didn't. And the man says, you are beating the drum for justice. Come here, come here, the man says, and he grabbed Brian by the jacket and he pulled him close. And he turned his head and you see this scar I have behind my right ear. I got it trying to register for people to vote in Greene County, Alabama in 1963. 
He turned his head and he said, do you see this cut? I got it in Philadelphia, Mississippi during the freedom summers in the 1960s. Turning his head again, he said, do you see this dark spot? That's my bruise. I got it in Birmingham, Alabama during the children's crusades in 1963. And he turned and looked at me and he said, people think I'm some old man sitting in a wheelchair covered with cuts and bruises and scars. But I'm gonna tell you something. These aren't my cuts. These aren't my bruises. These aren't my scars. These are my medals of honor. And he grabbed my hand and said, you keep fighting for justice. And when they knock you down, you get back up. Try to fall on your back so you can look up and know which way you have to go. Keep beating the drum for justice. Jesus is blessing those who have been broken by the worst the world has to offer. And then he blesses those who would fight and advocate and work on behalf of those who would be broken by the world. And at every point, the Beatitudes are a call and a beckoning for us to redefine who we call blessed. It is a beckoning to reconsider who we think of as the blessed ones. Scott McKnight writes, the Beatitudes of Jesus are nothing short of a revolution of evaluation. We see those in whom Jesus blesses, those who truly are the Jesus people of the world, and what he calls to our attention about them are not the sort of elements that often go into our evaluation methods. Jesus blesses two kinds of people, those who have been broken by the world and those who are working on behalf of those who have been broken. And if using those standards of evaluation, how do our evaluations of Christianity measure up? The application for this is how do your measures of, oh, that's a true Christian. That's someone who is walking close to Jesus. How do those two things measure up? How do our internal evaluations of, okay, that, that person's walking close to Jesus. How does that measure up with Jesus's blessings? Thanks for listening to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.